Welcome to the Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are my two colleagues, uh, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Ag Economics here at Purdue, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor and also the associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. So we're going to talk a little bit about the corn and soybean outlook in light of the USDA reports that were released yesterday. And there wasn't a lot of new information. There wasn't a lot of changes on the reports. So we're just going to focus on the changes. And really, uh, on the corn side, the uh, big change, but it was smaller change than expected, was uh, USDA did bump up the corn export forecast a little bit. They pushed it up. 50 million bushels compared to where they were in January. However, that still leaves it below where they were in December. Um, the challenge, of course, was the industry was expecting a bigger export boost from USDA, and so it was really kind of disappointed. And that was reflected in the weak futures market response yesterday, as well as a, another uh, weak futures response today. Um, as you look at the driver behind the changes in exports and look at what's going on with respect to exports, um, to China versus uh, all exports. Ed, you might want to move on to the next slide. Thank you. So if you look at the exports uh, on a weekly basis and look at them for the, uh, going back to the 2015 marketing year, 2016, 17, 18, 19, versus what's taking place this year, um, it's pretty interesting. Corn exports, these are the actual shipments so far this year, up 80% compared to last year. And exports to China alone account for almost 70% of the increase. Um, so that's kind of an interesting move. And, and with respect to the big change there, if you look at prior years, uh, historically, uh, China has purchased essentially zero uh, corn from the U.S. In, in prior years. So this is a big switch and really kind of makes the whole export forecast uh, business somewhat challenging. If you think about what's taking place in China, Obviously, the driver here is China's attempt to rebuild their uh, meat supplies very rapidly, especially pork. And in the process of doing that, in response to the African swine fever problem they've had in China for the last several years, they've really changed how they produce hogs. So they're really switching over to a more industrial style uh, pork production model. And that results in a big change in their in the diets. So they're really switching over to a diet that's focused more heavily on corn and soybeans. Uh, soybean meal, and that's really re uh, responsible for this big shift in their uh, their import requirements. Um, in fact, if you look at the next slide, we've got China's corn imports from all sources going back to the year uh, 2009. And you can see that historically, even from a worldwide basis, China has not been a big corn importer. Um, USDA's foreign ag service is currently projecting that their total imports will approach 900 million bushels. Um, the trade, however, is somewhat disappointed. I know as you look at some of the trade expectations, there are some folks in the trade that think that that number could rise uh, closer to a billion bushels, uh, maybe an, essentially another 100 million bushels above what USDA is projecting. And again, I think that's part of the reflection, uh, the negativity in the futures market yesterday and today is the fact that we're not seeing that. And if that's not going to materialize, I think it has some people a little bit concerned. Um, as you think about uh, other changes, um, if you look at those weekly exports as a percent of the annual total, uh, again, looking at the last uh, five years compared to 2020, um, 
total corn export shipments as a percentage of the annual forecast are actually kind of on track. I mean, you can see that there's some variability in that from a year-to-year standpoint. But truthfully, if you average that uh, 2015 through 2019 timeframe, it comes out pretty close to that 30% that we're at so far here in, in this current marketing year. So I know there's been a lot of enthusiasm about exports and an expectation to see some stronger export numbers coming from USDA. Um, but I think what's going on here is, is obviously some uncertainty with respect to what China's future corn import requirements are going to be. Uh, and if you look at it so far, um, it's a little different situation than what we're going to show you here in a few minutes with respect to soybeans, where the thing, things are looking significantly stronger than, than what USDA is currently projecting. So uh, that kind of gives you an idea as to what's taking place with respect to exports. The second thing that uh, driver, uh, which was really not a change, was what's going on in the ethanol uh, world. And so USDA did not change their forecast for ethanol usage compared to what they put out in January. But if you look at the data underneath that, you have to wonder whether or not they might change it in the future and actually maybe push back or reduce their estimate for ethanol usage. If you take a look at estimated daily ethanol plant margins, this is data published by Iowa State University where they estimate on a stylized basis, daily margins for a, a kind of a typical or average ethanol plant. And they try and estimate returns above variable cost. Um, you can see that those margins, looking at the right-hand side of that slide, those margins have been uh, not very good. Uh, they've been bouncing around some days positive, but just barely, some days negative, just barely, down significantly from where they were in uh, late October, early November. And so, again, if you follow up and look at the next uh, slide, we've got a weekly um, percent change in ethanol production compared to a year earlier. And going back to last March, we've been running below the year-ago level. And um, if you look at oh, September, October timeframe, uh, we had some weeks when ethanol production was within 4 to 5% of the year-ago level. However, if you look at the most recent data, in fact, the tail end of January, we were down about 13% compared to this time last year. Uh, so I think the question mark, and I think this is one of the question marks on a lot of people's mind, is um, will that ethanol forecast uh, that USDA has maybe turn out to be a little too optimistic? So you think about the reaction of the report, I think uh, a lot of people in the trade, a lot of people in the industry were disappointed that the export numbers weren't larger. Uh, that the import requirements uh, for China were not uh, increased. And secondly, there's this underlying concern about what's going on in the ethanol world in terms of whether or not we'll actually hit the targets. If you look at the ending stocks estimate, uh, ending stocks are down a little bit compared to the January estimate. They pulled the ending stocks estimate at the end of the 2020 marketing year, which of course would be the end of August, down 50 million bushels compared to their forecast in January. However, if you compare that to the surveys of uh, analysts around the nation uh, prior to the report's release, uh, that ending stocks estimate was at the very high end of analysts that were polled. And, and the average uh, was actually, I think, about 100 million bushels less than what USDA was suggesting. So a disappointing ending stocks estimate uh, coming from USDA relative to what people were thinking maybe coming into the report. Um, and if you look at those ending stocks, you know, I think we took a look at this last month, but 
those uh, February ending stocks are down about 55% compared to where we were at last June. So we're still looking at a much, much tighter supply situation than what we were expecting early in the marketing year. But um, still, the, the challenge here, the response that we saw yesterday and today, I think is heavily keyed off the fact that the average industry estimate coming in was smaller than what USDA actually wound up releasing yesterday. Um, if you look at ending stocks as a percentage of usage, um, we're still above 10%, but just barely. And I think those of you that have been on the webinars in the past know we've sort of been keying off of what took place in 2013. In 2013, ending stocks as a percentage of usage were just over 9%. So we're about 1% above that level. We haven't come back to that 9% level, but that's kind of an interesting number to think about when you look at the uh, marketing year averages that USDA is projecting. They did um, uh, raise their marketing year average by 10 cents a bushel. They pushed it up to $4.30 a bushel um, compared to 4.20 last month. And really that estimate reflects what's taken place so far in the first five months of the marketing year. I think um, I would be hesitant to, to point to that rise in the marketing year estimate as an indication of, of future price strength. I think it's more a reflection of price strength that's already occurred uh, here in this first five months of the marketing year. But nevertheless, as you think about that 2013 timeframe, notice that the marketing year average for 2013 was 446. So. If we see any further tightening, and I think the tightening would have to come largely from the export channels, uh, if we see any further tightening in these ending stocks estimates, that would be a clue that uh, we might see that marketing year average creep up towards that 2013 level. So Nathan, uh, you've been taking a look at uh, storage opportunities and cash forward contract bids here in Indiana, and, and uh, I'll let you take a look at that real quick here. Yeah, so on the next slide here, we have uh, just um, a couple of things to kind of put into context the decision uh, as you're thinking about any grain that you still have in storage, uh, how you might want to market that over the next couple of months. And so uh, the first line that we have here is, is the gold line is the future uh, uh, cash forward contract bids uh, at a, um, a local eleva elevator here in central Indiana. And so you can see, so for February delivery, they're currently bidding uh, $5.42. And that price kind of uh, bounces around there, around that level before tailing off there in the, the early summer months. And so when we're thinking about that price, uh, we need to think about what underlies that forward contract bid. There's the, the obviously the futures component, uh, and then there's the basis component. And we'll talk about each of those in a, in a little bit more depth here in a minute. But uh, what you need to realize is as those prices are declining there uh, throughout that storage season, we have an inverted corn futures market, meaning those deferred corn futures are trading for uh, less than the nearby, uh, which is uh, contributing to that kind of declining gold line there. The other thing to think about is, is those basis bids. And again, uh, we've got relatively strong basis levels. And again, I'll talk about that in a little more detail here in a second, but um, we don't have an appreciating basis pattern in those forward contract bids, meaning those basis bids kind of out through the rest of the storage season are pretty flat. And so if we don't have appreciation in basis and we don't have carry in the futures market, we wouldn't expect um, to see those forward contract bids, um, you know, increasing. Instead, we see them kind of flat to decreasing. The other two lines that you're looking at here, so the gray, the second gray or the gray line and then the, the lighter gold uh, line, are implied um, break-evens on storage, meaning 
if you're going to forgo uh, a cash sale today of $5.42, what would you need to sell that grain for in order to offset your storage costs? And so the two lines are two scenarios, an on-farm uh, storage scenario where I just assume uh, one cent per bushel per month of on-farm storage costs and an opportunity cost uh, at a 6% APR. And so basically, you know, call, uh, uh, adding those costs up over the months of the storage season, you can see that there's kind of this linearly upward sloping line. The, the lighter gold line, the top line there, uh, is a commercial storage uh, scenario. And again, th these are kind of uh, stylized. You'd want to plug in whatever specific cost structure you and your farm is facing uh, to do this sort of, of analysis. But I've assumed four cents per bushel per month for a commercial storage scenario. And again, the same 6% APR on the opportunity cost. And so really it's just a framework for thinking about uh, how you plan to market uh, old crop grain that you still have in storage uh, here over the remainder of the, the marketing year and what you can do is start to think about, okay, well, you know, I want to hang on to some grain because I think there's some upward potential. Well, look at these kind of implied break even. So for the, the on-farm uh, scenario, the gray line, you can see if you're going to forgo $5.42 uh, cash price today, if they're going to store it out into July, you'd need to sell it for $5.60 just to break even on storage costs, right? Not any, any benefit above that. In the commercial storage scenario, it's even higher, $5.75, given the higher cost structure associated with that commercial storage. And so what I would encourage people to do is they're thinking about grain that they still have uh, to market for this marketing year is, you know, obviously Michael's going to talk to us about break-evens a little later. You know, cash price opportunities are well above most people's break-evens. And so there are very, very profitable opportunities for people to be selling grain. If, if you're wanting to hang on and, and think about, um, you know, looking for, for some upside here over the next couple of months, you're certainly welcome to do that. I think that you probably want to be careful as far as what uh, portion of your crop you're going to do that with, because there are certainly risk. Uh, and something we talk about a lot, especially as it relates to the basis side of things, there's a lot of basis risk as we get out into that kind of early summer, late spring timeframe. So about May, right? Um, you're, you're kind of taking on probably a lot of risk uh, to, um, Look at that strategy, but that's that's something uh, to think about as you think about that decision. Um, you know, working through a framework for kind of what is it that you're looking to get out of those sales. So here we have the the basis chart uh, for Central Indiana, and so this is just giving us a little bit of feel about what's going on with basis um, and uh, corn basis in particular, and really not a lot to report here. So. Throughout much of the 2020-2021 marketing year, basis has been tracking along the three-year average, which is basically the, the expectation that we use. We can look at the kind of last three years and use that as a, a way to build an expectation of, of where we expect basis to be at certain points in the year. Uh, you can see that in January, we saw a little bit of a dip in basis. We talked about that a little bit last uh, month on the webinar as far as, you know, we saw big rallies and futures there at the beginning of January. And uh, you know, cash prices just didn't quite keep up, uh, but not any, not not a major drop, just a slight dip there. And we've seen that even recover here uh, of late, in spite of continued uh, strong futures prices. And so, in in light of kind of this basis conversation, one of the things that we had been discussing, and, and I thought would be useful to take a look at, was ethanol basis in particular. And so, Jim talked a little bit about um, the the ethanol situation as it relates to uh, the WASI report. 
as well as um, kind of ethanol margins and, and production numbers. And so what I did was uh, look at uh, basis levels as kind of a little bit of an indication of, of where those uh, ethanol plants might be in terms of uh, kind of needing corn. Uh, and so this is uh, the, the black line that you're looking at here is 2015 to 2018 average ethanol plant basis in the state of Indiana. So I took all the ethanol plants that I have access to information for, which I believe is 12 or so of the, I think 14 that are in the state uh, and average them uh, together for that three-year time period to give us kind of a baseline. Uh, and so you can see uh, that that number kind of bounces right there around zero, which is a little stronger than the statewide average basis, which is what we would expect given what we know about kind of the, the way that uh, ethanol plants uh, kind of have, have continuous demand uh, for corn. So the next line here, if we advance is the blue line. This is the 2018, uh, 2019 crop marketing year. And again, this is, this is just ethanol plant basis. And so what you can see here is uh, a relatively weak basis in the, the fall. And if you think back to what was going on in 2018, you had a trade war. And so uh, we had uh, kind of weak basis uh, throughout uh, the United States relative to, to historical. Uh, and that kind of, you know, despite the weakness, it followed a, a pretty typical strengthening or appreciation pattern through most of the marketing year. Then we got into the planning season, April, May, we had a really wet uh, spring of 2019. Uh, and those planning issues led to a lot of concerns about new crop and, and a really kind of uh, big push in demand uh, for that old crop. And we saw a real big increase in basis. Uh, especially from these ethanol plants as they needed corn uh, to continue production. And so uh, a real big bump there in, in terms of what we saw from ethanol basis. So then if we move to 2019, 2020, again, we started out with relatively strong uh, basis uh, all around ethanol plants included with the green line being above that kind of baseline of the, the black 2015 to 2018 average. And then we had, um, uh, COVID, right? And so in, in the March uh, timeframe, in particular areas with a lot of ethanol demand, saw a big drop in basis as um, you know, we had less travel, less demand for gasoline, ethanol just took a big hit. And so their demand for corn took a big hit and their, their bids uh, became a lot less uh, competitive with much weaker basis. And that's where we see that big dip in the green line. But what's interesting is you look, that, that uh, kind of... Um, dip in the green line there didn't last all that long before it recovered and really kind of tracked back on that 2015 to 2018 average. Uh, and then if you look at what's happening currently uh, in the 2020-21 uh, crop marketing year, the red line here, you know, it's tracking right along that, that historical uh, 2015 to 2018 average, maybe slightly below still. And again, I think that uh, leads uh, to some of the, the, the things that Jim already showed us as it relates to production and margins in the ethanol industry. Jim, anything you wanted to add there? So, you know, as you think about it, and I think your next chart is looking at Illinois, one of the interesting things is the different patterns as you move around the Corn Belt. And I think you in addition to Illinois and Indiana, you also looked at Ohio. And Ohio looked, as I recall, a lot like Indiana in terms of the patterns. But then when you looked at what was going on in Illinois, you really found a, a substantially different pattern, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So kind of uh, you know, looking at Ohio, again, specifically at the ethanol plants there, pretty much the same story as, as what I just shared uh, for the Indiana data. 
In Illinois, it was slightly different. Uh, and, and again, you know, we expect basis is, is inherently a local concept. So we expect there to be differences. Uh, but the, the real difference or the thing to maybe point out as we think about uh, what's going on here in terms of um, uh, ethanol plant basis is that in Illinois, that red line, so that represents the, the current marketing year, 2020, 2021, uh, is not tracking along that uh, 2015, 2018 average like we saw for Indiana, but instead is really tracking along what we were seeing at the beginning of um, uh, the 2019 crop marketing year when we had really strong basis, um, you know, at least around uh, the, the parts of the Eastern Corn Belt that we track. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of things that might underlie that as it relates to, you know, of late, we've had really strong export demand and, and we know we've had issues um, on the ethanol side of things. But again, ethanol has to keep up with whatever's going on in other places in terms of uh, being competitive to bid for corn. And that may be bidding up that basis bid. I, I'm not 100% sure of what is going on there uh, in Illinois relative to Indiana, but it's really interesting to kind of look at these patterns, uh, not only uh, of these ethanol plant basis patterns, you know, across years, but also different places geographically. Yeah, I think that's the key point. And I think uh, as you and I have done a lot of work with basis over the last few years and done some workshops, you know, one of the challenges is to make people aware that um, it is a very local concept and what takes place in your community and your part of the state and your part of the Corn Belt can have a big influence on what the basis is doing and it's worth paying attention to. So look for those opportunities. And, uh, you know, until you put this chart together, I guess I really wasn't aware of how strong the, the ethanol plant basis was in Illinois relative to what's going on in Indiana, which is really pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably reflective of the strength in the export markets, but I'm not completely certain that's the case. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about marketing strategy a little later. So let's turn our attention now and, and think about what's going on in the soybean market. Um, so again, a lot of not a lot of new information on the reports yesterday for soybeans, but the focus coming in for soybeans was really on exports. And USDA did bump up their soybean export forecast by a small amount. They bumped it up by 20 million bushels, which pushed it up to 2.25 billion bushels. And then as you look at it, and think about what was going on there and look at total exports that we've had so far this year versus what's going on in China. Uh, looking at that next slide. Um, it's been pretty interesting. So far, total soybean exports this year, these are shipments now, up 77% compared to last year. Um, and the rise in exports to China really accounts for all of the increase that we've had. Um, so very interesting development with respect to the strength in exports and the reliance on increasing exports to China uh, for that strength and, and really gives us some, some pause in terms of thinking about where we're headed down the road. Um, if you look at the next side, year-to-date weekly soybean export totals equal about 78%, almost 80% of USDA's annual forecast coming out of the February WASDE uh, uh, report. And, um, you know, if you think about it, this, uh, I mentioned this earlier, this is the same chart that I computed for corn, but notice it's different, right? Um, on the corn side, if you looked at this year versus prior years, we really weren't too far out of, uh, out of line with, with what I characterize as kind of normal uh, export behavior. On the soybean side, the soybean export pace has clearly been more rapid than what we've seen in the past. 
um, you know, kind of ruling out the the 2018 marketing uh, crop marketing year because of the impact of the trade dispute. Uh, if you can go back and look at uh, the marketing years of 15, 16, and 17, and kind of average those, and then think about that relative to this year, it's pretty clear this is a significantly more rapid rapid export pace, and really gives rise to the thought that uh, maybe we'll see those export numbers uh, from USDA actually go up. Uh, as we progress through this marketing year. Having said that, you know, I think there probably was some disappointment yesterday with the report, maybe not reflecting that, that strength in exports coming in. Um, if you look at the ending stocks, um, USDA did reduce the ending stocks and actually matched up pretty well with the pre-release uh, expectations. So their ending stocks are now down to 120 million bushels estimated at the end of this marketing year. That's pretty much on the on the button with respect to what the pre-release estimate was from the, the poll of, of analysts around the country. So that number came in pretty close. Despite that, we've had a pretty negative reaction to this report, both, uh, well, especially today, not so much yesterday. Yesterday, we had some strength following the report's release, but today it's been a pretty negative response. If you look at soybean ending stocks as a percentage of usage, we now have ending stocks as a percentage of usage, essentially matching what we saw in 2013. And, uh, you know, I, that's pretty interesting. If you go back and look at the prices and look at the marketing year averages, USDA did not change their marketing year average price forecast. They left it at 1115, uh, which is on that next slide, Ed. If you look at that 1115 uh, and compare that to where we were for marketing year average back in 2013, uh, we were at $13. So, a lot of uncertainty here. I think some disappointment that, you know, first of all, that maybe the export numbers weren't a little bit bigger. Secondly, um, some maybe some consternation over the fact that the uh, marketing year average price forecast didn't get bumped up. Uh, nevertheless, it still indicates we've got a pretty tight supply situation uh, coming into the remainder of this marketing year. So with that, Nathan, I think you've looked also at the storage opportunities, if you will, uh, on soybeans, right? That's right. So again, kind of the, the same framework here of thinking about uh, what those uh, forward contract bids are looking like for soybeans. And so again, very similar kind of uh, pattern here to what we saw for corn with, uh, you know, obviously very strong cash price bids, February delivery, you're looking at a bid of nearly $14 a bushel, which I don't think any of us were even dreaming about uh, not that long ago, uh, and, but really flat from there on out, right? Uh, and so again, that's a reflection of both um, inversion in the soybean futures market, right? There's no carry uh, with, with uh, higher prices in those deferred futures contracts, but then also uh, very little, uh, at least um, embedded uh, appreciation in, in the basis bids that underlie these cash forward contract bids and so if, if we don't have appreciation in basis and we have inverted futures, we don't really see a lot of incentive uh, to uh, store grain, at least as it relates to uh, what these forward contract bids uh, are giving us. And again, a useful way to think about it is compare uh, those current bids uh, from a, a local elevator here in central Indiana with the cost structure of what you uh, would be uh, incurring in terms of a cost to store that both on farm and in commercial storage. And so the gray line that you're looking at here is that uh, kind of implied break even price. If you're going to forego that $13 and 92 cents for delivery today, 
what would you need to sell that for in the future? And again, in the on-farm uh, storage scenario, I'm just assuming one cent per bushel per month and a 6% APR. You know, if your farm has a different cost structure, obviously you would need to uh, kind of rework those numbers slightly. Uh, and so that gives you a kind of a break-even uh, kind of out there at $14.23 a bushel into July. Uh, if you're gonna hang on, that's what you'd need to be looking for in order to just offset your costs. Uh, on the, the commercial storage side of things, again, that four cent per bushel per month, a little bit higher, which results in that kind of break-even or that implied break-even uh, line kind of running uh, above the, the gray line there. And so you're looking at uh, needing uh, a sale of somewhere around $14.35 a bushel to offset those storage costs and, and be kind of equivalent to a $13.92 sale today, right? So if you're gonna forego that today, you need to be looking at, at uh, a sale of $14.35 to just you know be, be just as well off given the, the storage costs that you're gonna incur. So as you're thinking about you know, soybeans that you still have uh, in storage, how you wanna look at that, again, it's the same advice that I gave for corn and the same kind of story that we gave uh, last month that hasn't really changed that month much. And that is, if you're gonna forego and you, and you wanna hang on, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, I certainly wouldn't uh, do that with a large portion uh, of the crop, just given the, the really uh, favorable kind of cash price uh, opportunities that we have. But you know, there, there is upside potential, but there's also downside potential. And again, the same story as it relates to, you know, as you look over the next couple of months, you know, that's probably fine. As you look further out, there's obviously more risk, uh, especially as we get into that summer timeframe. From a basis standpoint, we know there's a lot of risk. It becomes really hard to kind of know um, you know, what, what direction that's going to go. And, and again, it could go up, but it, it could go down. And so you kind of got to weigh the risk and your kind of tolerance for those uh, as you think about how you kind of plan to market what you have remaining of the, the current year's crop. So Nathan, I think uh, we should probably point out, I think the prices you were using reflect uh, yesterday's close. Is that correct? Is that when you, when you pulled these prices or were they this morning? Uh, I think it was this morning. Okay. So, you know, we've, we're down significantly today. So the starting point, um, if we were looking at it this afternoon, would be a little bit lower with, I think, nearby soybeans down about 47 or 48 cents today. Uh, so keep that in mind. But the rest of the computations would obviously match up exactly with what you've done. And one of the challenges going forward is to always think about, you know, and this is what I like about this chart. It forces you to think about if I don't sell today, what am I hanging on for? And as you point out, that might be a valid decision to, to hang, choose to hang on, but it's always important to think about what am I waiting for? What do I have to have in the future to actually uh, be better off than what I am today? So, so you've taken a look at the basis as well uh, for soybeans? Yeah, so again, just, just digging a little bit into the basis side of things, you know we have kind of um, uh, strong futures. And again, we know we've, we've seen those drop off a little bit here today. Uh, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But on the basis side, we've had strong basis uh, throughout this marketing year. And so again, this is just looking uh, at central Indiana. And so the black line here is uh, that current year's uh, basis level. Uh, so 2020, 2021 marketing year where the blue line is the two-year average for the previous two years. And, and the, the blue line is kind of what we would use as our kind of expectation if we wanted to build a forecast of what we thought basis would be. But, you know, we've, we've kind of consistently ran probably 20 to 30 cents above that. So right now I think that uh, we're looking at a, a, 
a current nearby basis in central Indiana of somewhere around five under, uh, whereas typically we would see that as kind of minus 25 this time of year. And so that 20 cent premium above that, uh, based on our research, you know, likely you could expect that to um, uh, be around in the short term. But again, based on our research, you know, if you're looking at holding on to grain and, and wanting to know what basis is going to be into the summer, there's a lot more risk in terms of forecasting that kind of premium, you know, will it remain or not? It, it's hard to say. The research says that, you know, we typically would, would revert back towards the blue line as we think further out into the future. Uh, but again, it, it's much more noisy as we think about uh, that kind of May, June timeframe with, with kind of the shift from new crop and old crop. And, and that basis can really get volatile that time of year in one direction or the other. Yeah, I think Nathan maybe stated another way. You might say, don't uh, don't count on that strength and basis remaining there forever. Um, you know, and, and as you point out, the volatility and basis in the summer is so heavily tied to growing conditions uh, and what's taking place with respect to supply expectations. So it's possible in a tight environment, a tight supply situation, tight carryover situation, we could see a very positive basis this summer. However, the flip side of that is if we see a really good growing condition, we could see that basis collapse back towards that blue line. So very based on history, very, very difficult to forecast what the basis is going to do this summer. Uh, you certainly can look at some years when that basis got pretty strong towards the end of that marketing year, but there is no guarantee that's going to happen. Well, let's take uh, a look at estimated returns here, Michael, and you've been looking at net farm income in yeah, 2021. Let me, explain, let me explain, explain how this graph is, is created. This is a cruel net farm income for a West Central Indiana case farm. And so because it's accrual net farm income, it's gross revenue minus cash costs, minus depreciation. So the important point here is opportunity costs on operator labor, machinery and land are not included. And so uh, that's very important to point out. Uh, and another thing that's important to point out here is I assume that half the crop is, half the crop each year is stored and sold after the first of the year. And so when you look at 2021, Part of the part of the uh, the high net farm income there is, is explained by selling half of the corn and soybean crop in, uh, that was harvested in 2020 in early 2021. Uh, also in the projection for 2021, I, I've used the opening uh, decent price for corn and opening soybean price uh, for you know opening a, a, a November 2021 soybean price. Uh, those were approximately 450 for corn and 11.75 for soybean. But the main reason we show this chart uh, this month, at least, is, is, is to point out the importance of a marketing plan for the 21 crop. We want to try to preserve uh, that, that net farm income or that, that hot, relatively high margin, uh, if you will, uh, as, as much as possible. Uh, and so as things change, certainly that, uh, uh, that blue bar could decline. And so, uh, and so we need to think about a marketing plan for the 21 crop. Also, it's important to think about crop insurance decisions uh, for 2021 to try to preserve uh, some of the, the some of the the the, uh, the relatively strong margins uh, that that we're seeing today, uh, given current futures prices, and so that's that's the main reason why we're showing this chart. Yeah, so as you look at the chart, Michael, I mean it's it's pretty astounding, particularly if you think about where we thought we were going to be, let's say last summer, uh, and to have a return that's approaching, not quite as positive, but almost as good as what we saw in 2012. So the best returns we've seen in almost a decade. Uh, that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, we were talking about 15, 17 levels right. for the crop net returns. 
uh, last summer, and, and now we're seeing very strong net returns, uh, the strongest we've seen since 2012. Yeah. So let's take a look at the futures uh, prices. These are updated charts um, just a few minutes before we went on the air. So it reflects today's market activity. And of course, as I indicated earlier, the market was pretty negative today. I think uh, nearby corn was down about 21 or 22 cents. Um, these corn was down uh, not quite as much. I think these corn was down about seven or eight cents. Uh, but as you look at the chart, even with that weakness, notice, you know, as you look at that chart, we're still looking very close to historic highs on these contracts, right? Um, you see the same story here. This is the December chart. Um, and as you look at it, you know, it's been bouncing around at that, uh, um, what, 450 to 460 level here. Um, and as Michael pointed out, there's really an opportunity there to, to think about doing some pricing. In fact, kind of as Nathan was pointing out with his charts earlier, if you choose not to sell today, then you have to ask yourself, what is, what is it that I'm waiting for? What price target do I have in mind? Because these are very positive returns from a management standpoint. And to, thinking about that a little more, Nathan, you took a look explicitly at uh, uh, some pricing opportunities for a new crop corn, which... You know, I think a lot of us at this time of year, we're still kind of caught up on thinking about old crop corn. But if you haven't really taken a look at new crop opportunities, you really need to start doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, just just thinking about the chart that Michael showed and the potential for income, uh, projected income there in 2021 and how that's kind of reflective of those new crop futures. That's where he's building those uh, income levels using those prices. It really... Uh, Cause you to, to pause for a moment and think about, you know, what are what are what are the opportunities there for me in terms of new crop uh, corn? And so I think one of the things you, especially in the charts that you just showed, I think one thing that is is uh, maybe uh, uh, influencing the psyche of some of these decisions is we're seeing, you know, that March contract trading, you know, above five dollars, and then we're looking at um, new crop corn at four fifty or so, and it's like, oh, well, that's a huge discount, you know, relative to March. Well, that's true, but you know, we we that's that's what the market is telling us that corn is going to be worth in the fall. And so, what we need to do is think about it kind of logically outside of the the scope of what we're seeing currently in terms of cash prices. And so, I just did a very simple exercise here to think about you know what the market is currently offering us. And so, if we look at December uh, twenty one corn futures right there around four forty eight uh, plus or minus a few cents, depending on when you when you look at that. I went to the crop basis tool and uh, pulled out basically the average basis the last three years uh, for central Indiana. Again, you could look at whatever region that you're in and get a specific uh, basis for your region. But in, in central Indiana, that was about 15 cents under there in October, so right around the harvest time frame. And so a 448 futures minus 15 cents for basis is a $4.33 expected cash price uh, for harvest delivery, right? And so you know, again, that's a lot different than what we're seeing today with, you know, uh, cash delivery of over $5 a bushel, but $4.33 uh, corn, right, being able to, to lock in and preserve what Michael's showing us in terms of a, a projected income uh, is, is something that you need to at least be thinking about. Um, and, you know, what something we've been talking about for a while is thinking about it from a risk management perspective, right? And so it's, it's, um, you know, preserving or, or maybe uh, locking in uh, a certain portion of the crop or 
setting a floor on that portion of the crop while maybe trying to maintain some of the upside. And we've, we've bounced around different strategies that we might be able to do that. I don't know if we want to get into too much detail with that, Jim, but um, the point is, you know, don't let the current $5 uh, cash price uh, situation, uh, you know, blur you too much, you know, deter you too much from what opportunities are out there for new crop corn, because there are some really favorable opportunities to, to lock in profitable levels. Michael's going to show us break-evens here in a minute. Yeah, and I think, Nathan, we won't go into too much detail on some of those strategies, but, you know, if you think about it and think about some of the work that you've done with respect to marketing strategies, you know, if you're willing to use futures, you might consider placing a hedge in December corn futures. Um, I think your analysis previously suggested the spread into the deferred contracts usually peaks closer to harvest time. So you might think about if you're somebody who typically likes to store a significant portion of your crop uh, into, into the new year, you know, you might roll that hedge forward into a deferred contract uh, sometime this fall when those spreads peak and then maybe capture some basis improvement. And so that 433 could turn out to be more, uh, maybe more like, depending on where your location is, maybe more like 450, 455, even 460, depending on the year. So there's some opportunities to improve um, on that 433 that you've got listed there. And that's just a straightforward hedge. So thanks for doing that. Um, on the soybean side, uh, the charts don't look identical, but there's certainly some similarity, right? This is March futures. Um, you know, March futures did take a hit today. We've been trading sideways here lately. And the market, I think, is really looking for some indication that we're going to tighten further relative to what the current ending stocks estimate is. Um, but still, from a historic standpoint, looking at it where we were, you know, these are still some of the strongest prices we've seen at the entire uh, time that contract's been trading. A similar story on the November futures contract, right? Um, so even though with today's weakness, uh, still some opportunities out there. And again, Nathan, you took a look at some hedging opportunities for uh, somebody was looking at uh, November futures and maybe locking in a portion of uh, pricing on a portion of their 21 crop as well. Yeah, so same kind of framework here. Just took, you know, November 21 soybean futures, of, you know, in that $11.60 range here, I have $11.67. I uh, went to the crop basis tool. Again, I, I just went to central Indiana, but again, you'd want to go to kind of your specific uh, region of the state or the Eastern Corn Belt that we have in there. Uh, and so looking at um, kind of fall basis um, uh, for the last two years to get kind of an average is about 30 cents under. And so again, when you look at that 1167 futures and a 30 cent, negative 30 cent basis, you're looking at uh, cash price in, in the fall of, you know, around $11.30, $11.40. And again, that looks, you know, quite a bit less than maybe what we're seeing currently in terms of cash prices. Uh, but those are very favorable price levels. Again, these are what underlie uh, the, the bar on, on Michael's chart there that showed us that we could have income levels as high as, you know, as uh, not as high as, but, you know, as high as what we've seen since 2012, right? And so again, really, really favorable uh, kind of, levels of, of, of prices that, that we have an opportunity to, to lock in. You know, I don't think any of us would say that we, you should lock in everything today, right? Um, however, thinking about, you know, how you can take some positions and, and protect or preserve some of that is certainly something that I think I'd confer, encourage folks to be thinking about. Yeah, and you, you kind of pose a question, Nathan, on your slide says, uh, how can you protect favorable pricing opportunities while leaving open upside potential? And 
you know, there are some opportunities here to think about some strategies that aren't real complicated, uh, but but do really create some opportunities. So one would be to sell futures. And, you know, usually what holds us back in terms of, of making a sale, whether it's on the future side or a cash delivery, is a forward contract delivery, is the idea that prices could go up, right? And so one opportunity there would be to say, well, you know, maybe I want to combine this with an option strategy. So I could sell futures or forward contract and simultaneously think about purchasing a call option, uh, which would effectively create kind of a synthetic put. And the reason you might do that is you could pick, you've got some flexibility with respect to picking that strike price on that call. And you could decide, well, how much of the upside am I really worried about uh, potentially given up and you might purchase what's known as an out of the money call. So a strike price that's above current price levels to reduce the cost of that. So there's some strategies you can use that maybe would give you some confidence uh, because I think the big, one of the big concerns people have about selling very much here in advance of planting season uh, and even advance of harvest is the idea that they'd miss out on a big rally. And you can structure a strategy that would say, hey, I'll be, I'm willing to give up some of the rally, but I don't want to give up, you know, if we have something crazy happen, like a 2012 drought or something, uh, what would happen here? Well, you can construct a strategy that would allow you to capture the majority of that um, at a relatively low cost, while also enabling you to protect uh, your margins that, that Michael's been talking about. So, and that's true on corn as well as soybeans. That, that same strategy would work. Uh, reasonably well on, on either one of those commodities this year. So, Michael, you have taken a look at uh, break-even corn prices, which I think is pretty interesting. And again, I think illustrates why people want to think about these margins a little bit. What I'm illustrating here is some break-even corn prices for the West Central Indiana Case Farm uh, that we typically talk about in this webinar. And I'm using five-year averages for the bars and 10-year and averages for the line. Let's focus on the five-year averages. The reason I'm using five-year averages is to take out some of the variability in yield and, and the impact of, of variability in yield on break-even price. But for this farm, as with a lot of farms across the Corn Belt, uh, when you look at cash cost depreciation plus opportunity costs and operator labor, machinery, and land, we're looking at a break-even around four. And my open question here is, how many times can you look at cash prices, as was illustrated by, by Nathan and, and discussed by Jim and Nathan, how many times can you look at cash prices for the upcoming fall that are above your break even? That's why we're really encouraging you to think about it. Uh, you think about your marketing plan because this doesn't occur all the time uh, where you have cash prices above all the costs, including opportunity costs. Uh, looking at high productivity soil, uh, the break even price would even be better than what I'm illustrating here on 2021. Uh, if you if you look at our uh, Purdue crop cost and return guide, we're looking at a, a break even price right around 390 for on high productivity soil uh, for for Indiana. Uh, turning to soybeans, it's the same story. Uh, you know, back in back in the years where we had relatively high prices, our break even was substantially higher. Uh, and so we, a, a, after some decreases in cash rent uh, specifically, we're looking at some lower break even prices right now. And again, we have a situation uh, like Nathan illustrated where the cash price is above break-evens. For this form, the break-even, five-year moving average break-even price is right around that 975, which is very similar uh, to what the break-even price is uh, on a high-productivity soil uh, using our, our budget. And so, and so your take-home assignment here uh, is to calculate break-even prices for corn and soybeans and see how they compare uh, to these two charts. 
So, Michael, you've also taken a look at uh, projected differences in earnings per acre on corn versus soybeans, and that's very interesting given this ongoing debate that's taking place in the market with respect to how many acres of corn and soybeans are we going to plant nationally here uh, this spring? We've been showing this for the last several months, and I have to admit, uh, corn is a little more competitive now, but the fact that that, that that uh, that red checkered bar in 2021 is red and it's below zero means that there's still a slight advantage towards soybeans, at least for the Eastern Corn Belt. Uh, and and so I, I so I, I when I see uh, when I see numbers thrown out, out like 95 million acres of corn, that's not going to come from the Eastern Corn Belt. Those 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 higher corn acres. That's going to have to come from the Western Corn Belt, uh, the Great Plains. And I have to admit, if you looked at this chart for the Western Corn Belt corn would be a little more competitive, but uh, I just don't see that much continuous corn uh, specifically uh, in this part of the world. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting, and we're going to have to kind of debate that probably over the next couple of months. I think that's going to be the market's um, kind of incentivized uh, opportunity to incentivize people to plant corn versus soybeans or soybeans versus corn. That's going to continue to be a debate that takes place the rest of the winter in terms of getting those acreages to come out. We'll talk more about that in just a second. So you've taken a look at uh, fall price projections um, and maybe looked at those numbers a little more comprehensively. So let's walk through the table you've got there. Yeah, what I'm trying to do here is compare continuous corn uh, to rotation soybeans. And so for ground coming off of corn uh, in, in 2020, uh, you know, how does continuous corn compete? Uh, so I've got cost building, I've got relative costs in built in here, I've got the relative yields, they're illustrated at the top of the chart. Uh, so please take a look at those. And so uh, using that price that Nathan was illustrating and that this is a approximately the price I used to, to calculate the uh, net farm income in 2021, 1150 soybeans. What this, what this chart is telling us is even on high productivity soil, we'd have to have corn prices in excess of $4.78 in the fall in order to uh, in order to uh, grow continuous corn over rotation soybeans. I just don't think that has a very high probability. And so that's why I say at least of the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, Indiana in Ohio specifically, I think rotation soybeans are very competitive uh, compared to continuous corn. Yeah, and so that would be maybe negate some of that idea that we would flip uh, acres uh, away from corn um, into, into soybeans, right? That's actually suggests soybeans are more competitive than some of yeah, the information that's out there. I think in Indiana, you're there. certainly looking at a 50-50 with maybe perhaps more soybeans than corn like we've seen the last several years. Uh, what about uh, looking at second year soybeans versus rotation corn? You took a look at that as well. Now, this is a little different. This has changed a little bit since, since we uh, showed this, uh, showed this uh, uh, the last time we showed this. And, and so looking at second year soybeans versus rotation corn, a uh, different story. Uh, if you're looking at 1150 soybeans, uh, you're you're still looking at at, at uh, uh, corn prices of, of, of 441 or above. Uh, that's that's some that's pretty close to the numbers that we were talking about earlier. 430, 435 right now. That's that's too close. Uh, I think for someone to think about think about growing second year soybeans. And so uh, when it gets that close, I always I always say favor the rotation. Uh, you know, uh, there's the real advantages of using uh, rotations long term. And so. So in this case, I think rotation corn is very competitive uh, to second year soybeans. Yeah, I think uh, before the webinar, you and I were talking a little bit about this with respect to if you have any kind of adverse uh, weather patterns, um, that's when the stress kind of shows up or maybe a little more likely to show up with respect to 
um, second year soybeans, uh, continuous corn, right? If you have perfect weather conditions, those are maybe more favorable. But if you have any kind of a challenge, uh, challenging growing season, that's when the risk really starts to show up in those continuous uh, either soybeans or corn um, uh, planting patterns. And we also have to remember, you know, Jim and Nathan, that that from a risk management standpoint, uh, you know, uh, even though uh, soybean returns, soybean net, soybean net returns and corn net returns are highly correlated, they're not perfectly correlated. And so some summers you have, it favors soybeans because we had the weather, uh, the weather in early August while we were, while the soybeans were potting was very conducive to high soybean yields. Other years it favors corn. And so growing that 50-50 mix is also a good risk management strategy. Yeah, good point. Well, let's take a look real quick at uh, the acreage numbers a little bit. And I don't know that we're really ready to project an acreage number, but um, I've got corn planted acreage on the screen there. In 2020, we planted 91 million acres. You take a look at soybeans in 2020, we planted 83 million acres. And the question mark is going to be, you know, what are we going to see with respect to these acreage numbers? And you, you kind of alluded to this, Michael. There's been some reports floating around lately suggesting we could see a significant bump in corn acreage. And I think the number that you tossed out, which I think we both have seen in the press, was about 95 million acres with soybean acres maybe not bouncing back too much. And, uh, you know, based on your budgets, at least looking at the eastern Corn Belt side, um, I suggest that we might see larger soybean acreage than that and maybe smaller corn acreage than that. Is that kind of where you come out? To see soybean acreage similar to, to what it was last year when we have a 2.6% carryover, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, that that's such a low carryover, and, and given the fact that we have – fairly uh, strong export demand for soybeans. I know that's occurring for corn too. It just seems to me that we're going to, we're going to have uh, quite a few more acres than 83 million acres of soybeans. What's your thoughts on that? That's kind of where I come out at the moment. And uh, you know, I don't know that we'll see soybean acres get all the way back to where it was in, in 2018, which was 89 million acres. No, but, I'm not predicting that either, but, but maybe somewhere in between there between yeah. 83 million and 89 million. I, I would be, and I would be surprised if we see corn up at that 94, 95 million acre range as well. So um, that's going to play out a little bit here. And I know folks are, um, most of the folks watching this webinar have probably decided pretty much what they're going to do with respect to corn and soybean acreage, but there's always an opportunity to do some shifting as we get in um, closer to planting season. But uh, uh, it's going to be an interesting spring. So I think it goes back to something that Nathan talked about earlier. I mean, all the excitement related to 550 corn, I'm thinking about that and, and not really not looking as closely as perhaps we should be looking at the price relationship uh, in, in the fall. It's not the same as, as what it is, is today. We're not looking at $5 plus corn. There's a probability that can occur, but it's certainly not that likely. Uh, and, and so I, so I think that's part of what's going on here. Uh, that's a good point. I think, you know, our best forecast of what you could get for corn and soybeans this fall uh, is what those deferred futures contracts are trading for. So when you look at it that way, the which is kind of how you, your budgets were built, um, the soybean uh, decision looks a little more favorable than, than perhaps some people in the trade have been suggesting here lately. Well, that wraps up our discussion for this week. Our next webinar coming up on March 1. Uh, each year, we always do a webinar that focuses on crop insurance. But Michael, uh, you know, there's some new things to talk about 
with respect to crop insurance. And I think, uh, you know, we're going to spend some time looking at that. And you might mention what, uh, what you've been looking at so far. We've had SCO for a while, but, uh, but certainly that's something to look at for those that have, that are, have acreage enrolled in PLC, like corn, for example. A lot of producers are probably going to choose corn uh, for, for, for their Arc County PLC decision. Uh, and so we'll look at that again. We're also going to look at something called advanced coverage option, which is new in 2021, and it's an endorsement. Uh, it's a way to increase your revenue guarantee uh, past the revenue guarantee you have with your revenue protection product. And so we'll take a close look at that and, and see the pros and cons of using both SCO and ECO. We'll take a look at that, see what it costs and see uh, how that might play out. But I think uh, it's an interesting product. It's worth at least thinking about. And we'll spend some time on the webinar talking about that because that'll be a change for this year program that wasn't available in the past. So I encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag Podcast with your friends and colleagues. On behalf of my colleagues, Nathan Thompson and Michael Langemeyer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minnert. 